Hello, and welcome to today's seminar on the U.S. election's impact on South Asia. I'm Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The mission of the Institute is to engage through interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues relevant to South Asia and its relationship with the world. Before we get started, we have a couple of housekeeping items for today. During the question and answer session, you can submit questions directly to the moderator via the Q&A function on Zoom. There will be a short survey automatically sent to you at the end of the session. We would ask that you kindly fill this out. Finally, today's session will be recorded. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderator of today's session, Ronak Desai. Ronak is an associate at the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute, a recognized practitioner in the fields of law and foreign policy. His work focuses on US-India relations, diaspora politics, anti-corruption, Congress, and global governance. An attorney in private practice, Ronak currently leads the India practice at a prominent international law firm, and also advises clients in a broad range of complex investigative, regulatory, and public policy matters. From 2014 to 2016, he served as Democratic counsel to a prominent select committee in the United States Congress. He routinely advises members of Congress on legal and foreign policy issues, particularly pertaining to South Asia. Ronak teaches a popular course on U.S. foreign policy towards South Asia at the, universe, at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He's a regular contributor to leading publications in both the United States and the Asia Pacific, including Forbes and Bloomberg. He earned joint public policy and law degrees from the Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Law School, from which he graduated magna cum laude. Thank you for being with us today, Ronak. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for that very generous introduction, and, and you can all hear me properly, I hope. Um, so I'm absolutely delighted that uh, we are having this event. It is so timely uh, and so topical. You know, we're, we're less than a week away from the election, and I know there's just so much interest. Um, we're very fortunate to have convened a very distinguished panel for us today. Uh, Ambassador Rao, Vipin, and I are in three different time zones. I'm in the West Coast, Vipin's out East, and Ambassador Rao is, is joining us all the way from Bangalore where it's uh, close to midnight. So special thanks to her uh, for joining us today. So here's what I'd like to do over the next hour or so, more or less. Um, I'm gonna introduce both of our distinguished speakers here in a second, just so the audience is familiar with them and, and their backgrounds. Um, I'm going to just provide a couple of minutes of, of brief observations on, on what's happening right now in South Asia, where we are here in the U.S., um, and, and hopefully just set the stage for the conversation that we're going to be having uh, during this session. I'll turn it at that point over to Ambassador Rao and Vipin, who will each give uh, and provide their own set of remarks um, on on what we will be discussing uh, today, and then I'll, I'll add in my own thoughts. And at that point, I'm, I'm hoping we can have what will be a very robust conversation. I know all of us are incredibly eager to, to hear from the audience. We wanna make this as interactive as possible. Um, we're hoping to make this as informal as possible as well. We're fortunate that we all know each other. And, and for that reason alone, um, looking forward to this event. So. Without further ado, let me first introduce Ambassador Nirupama Rao, again, joining us from Bangalore. And Ambassador Rao, for those of us who know you, know what a distinguished career you've had uh, in India's Foreign Service. She served as India's Foreign Secretary from 2009 to 2011. She was formerly uh, the spokesperson for the Ministry of External Affairs at one point. 
And Ambassador Rao's really held some of the most important diplomatic posts um, in India. She, she served as High Commissioner to Sri Lanka. She served as India's ambassador to China. And most recently, she served as India's ambassador to the United States over in Washington um, for, for a few years. Uh, she's in retirement now, but has, has stayed very active. They say there's no time as busy as, as retirement. Since her retirement, she's been a, a fellow at a whole host of different places around the world. Uh, just to name a few here in the US, at Brown University at Columbia. She's been a fellow over at UC San Diego. Um, just really has spanned um, kind of both coasts and everything in between since that time. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that she was a fellow at the Center for International Affairs, uh, now the Weatherhead Center here at Harvard. Uh, in the past, she's also a founding trustee, along with her husband, Sudhakar, of the South Asian Symphony Foundation um, and has established the South Asian Symphony Orchestra. And this is a project that is aimed at greater people-to-people -people connectivity in South Asia and among the South Asian diaspora. Um, it brings musicians from all over the subcontinent, and they've just performed these unprecedented and kind of historic uh, concerts and symphonies in India and in other places around the world. Um, the last thing I should add, and again, otherwise we'd be here for the next half an hour at least, but I, I, I want to add also that Ambassador Rao is in the final stages of completing a book on India's China relationship um, called Tell It on a Mountain, India and China, 1949. 1962 to be published by uh, Penguin Random House next year. Of course, this book draws upon Ambassador Rao's expertise and her time serving as the top, top Indian diplomat in China. Um, let me next introduce Dr. Uh, Vipin Narang. Um, Vipin is an associate professor of political science at MIT. He's a member of MIT's security studies program. He's been a fellow at Harvard's University's uh, Olin Institute for Strategic Studies, was a pre-doc fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center, and he was a Stanton Junior Faculty Fellow at Stanford University's Center for International Security and Cooperation. Uh, his research interests, again, if you know his work, uh, nuclear proliferation and strategy, North Korea's nuclear weapons, South Asian security, and general security studies. His first book, Nuclear Strategy in the Modern Era, which was published in 2014, um, focused on the deterrent strategies of regional nuclear powers. And that book won the 2015 ISA International Security Studies Section's Best Book Award. He is currently working on his second book, Strategies of Nuclear Proliferation, which explores how states pursue nuclear weapons. His work has appeared in a variety of outlets, including international security, Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, The New York Times. I think I just saw him quoted uh, in the Los Angeles Times not too long ago. He was the recipient this year of the uh, ISSS Emerging Scholar Award, uh, which is awarded to the scholar who has made the most significant contribution to the field of security studies. Um, Vipin has earned his PhD from Harvard University. Uh, he's a Marshall, a Marshall scholar, and he did his engineering degrees, uh, both his bachelor's and his master's from Stanford University as well. You can sometimes catch Vipin um, on the news. There will be 15 talking heads yelling all at each other, and you'll see Vipin uh, very quietly waiting and, and patiently watching all this before he provides some very good insight. So Ambassador Rao, Vipin, um, we are so delighted you are here. We are absolutely thrilled that we could make this happen again so close to the election. I know this is generated a lot of interest and um, in that from what I can tell, we've got participants from literally all over the world. 
So let's just jump right in. And you know, one thing we were talking about just briefly before we, we, we went live is that you know, South Asia is a part of the world where things happen very quickly. Uh, it's a part of the world where we have developments taking place at a very rapid rate. And I know the election's six days away. I know folks in South Asia, whether it's governments or their people, are watching with a lot of interest um, with respect to what's going to happen here in the U.S. But as I was just thinking about what's been going on in that part of the world, here's what came to mind immediately, right? Uh, just these past couple of days, the U.S. and India held the 2 plus 2 dialogue. We had the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and the Defense Secretary, Mr. Esper, meet their counterparts in India. Uh, External Affairs Minister Jay Shankar and, and Defense Minister Rajnath Singh. They just signed an important agreement on geospatial uh, satellite imagery sharing and intelligence. At the same time, earlier this month, we saw the Taliban endorse President Trump and make very clear, for example, that they, they very much prefer a, a second Trump administration and, and actually said they were concerned when the president got COVID and, and were glad to see he had recovered. I, I should note the Trump administration very expressly rejected uh, that endorsement. Uh, Secretaries Pompeo and Esper are heading to Sri Lanka. I think now they, they were in Colombo, they head to the Maldives. They're meeting their counterparts there as well. Um, this comes against a background, of course, of tensions between India and China uh, and a, a fairly violent and bloody conflict that erupted back in August. This also comes at a time of increasing tensions between the US and China itself. Internally in Sri Lanka, we saw the Rajapaksha government uh, pass a number of constitutional, what they're billing as reforms, but are, are ultimately ways to garner more power. And it looks like that that government's consolidating power in that country. Uh, and in Bangladesh, we're seeing an increased focus on that country and that nation play a greater role in the U.S.'s Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, I could go on and on and on, but this is all that's happened in the last 10 to 12 days or so. Um, and I just wanted to highlight this a little bit again to talk about the fact that we're talking about a part of the world that a really matters to the united states but a part of the world that really does deeply care what happens with our elections here as well um and and for the simple and inevitable fact that what happens here affects folks there and vice versa so let me pause there i, I just wanted to, to throw some some stuff out there to, to potentially unpack um and, and ambassador rao if, if i can turn it over to you to talk about any of these things or, or, or really anything that you'd like to talk about. Um, again, the, the, the virtual floor is yours, sir, to say. Thank you. Thank you, Ronak. And uh, thank you to the Mittal Institute for this opportunity uh, to participate in this webinar and uh, with Vipin and Ronak. And uh, it's good to be back uh, on a platform at Harvard. I have such uh, great nostalgic memories of times spent there. It was really my introduction to the United States when I first went, uh, landed in Boston and Cambridge in the fall of 1983, in fact, quite a long time back. Well, I've been, uh, we're here to talk about the impact of the US election in South Asia, uh, on South Asia and uh, Coming from where I am situated at the moment in Bangalore, which is the Silicon Valley of India, right in the heart of the peninsula, quite far away from the Himalayas. Uh, we are what uh, in India, it, it, we are in what we call in, uh, in our part of the world, South India. Uh, so, uh, so the perspective from here is very ocean oriented, very outward oriented. 
Uh, we are people, uh, in fact, I come from the coastal state of Kerala, which has interacted so closely with the rest of the world, including uh, with the rest of uh, the subcontinent. So uh, what is the impact of the uh, US election on uh, South Asia? At this moment, of course, we're just a few days away from uh, the end of the campaign and we, we hopefully will know the results uh, in the course of uh, the next week or so. Uh, and uh, it's too early to say what the impact is going to be because we don't know who is going to win the election, whether it's going to be President Trump or Vice President Biden. Uh, there was some um, impression that, uh, that the perception that Delhi, uh, the perception was that Delhi had a preference uh, for uh, President Trump. But I think that is, uh, is a bit far-fetched because I don't believe um, the government uh, is really, um, you know, going to state that kind of preference, never mind what happened at the Howdy Modi events or the Namaste Trump events. Uh, but the, the, the Trump years have been, uh, I would say, good for the relationship. Uh, I think in, in, in the main, because the foundational uh, precept or the principle that guides this relationship has been uh, a continuum, a continuum that has been established from uh, the early 2000s, at least, uh, if not going back before that, uh, with the nuclear deal, with the next steps in strategic partnership, with the defense uh, cooperation initiative, and all the subsequent um, understandings that have been reached in the administrations of different presidents, be they Republican or Democrat. But during the Trump years, yes, what has marked the relationship is the, is the very good chemistry between President Trump and Prime Minister Modi. Uh, they're both, uh, you know, they have their populist, popular base uh, in each of their countries, a very solid base. And uh, their voice seems to resonate among uh, the people, at least uh, those who, who believe in their mandate and in, in uh, their mission. But be that as it may, where the India-US relationship is concerned, there's been an elevation of ties. Defense Secretary Esper in recent days called it a most consequential relationship, which I think it is because it is a strategic partnership that is vital, a comprehensive global strategic partnership, as it's called, which is vital to security and stability in our region and the world, a relationship between two great democracies. And that's not just using well-worn cliches. I think uh, we relate to each other because of the plurality and the diversity and the multidimensional nature of life, as it were, within our political systems and our societies. Today, that relationship, um, yes, some say is very defense and security oriented. Uh, perhaps there's a great deal of emphasis on that and uh, which seems to overshadow cooperation in other areas. But the fact is that with the rise of China and the difficulties that India is facing in its relationship with China, as also uh, the tensions, the, the atmosphere of confrontation between China and the United States today, India and the US have drawn much closer to, to each other. And there is a stress on regional security and a pros prosperity-based and uh, rules-based international order. So if you look at the 
the two plus two meeting that just concluded in Delhi um, yesterday. The, by two plus two, I mean the meeting of the defense and foreign ministers of India and the United States. So you had Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Esper in Delhi meeting with Defense Secretary Rajnath Singh, Defense Minister Rajnath Singh and Foreign Minister S. Jay Shankar. And they uh, spoke of a shared vision for the Indo-Pacific and the Indo-Pacific is, is, a, is a, a geopolitical term that has really gained ascendancy in the Trump uh, years. And so today that region, which earlier, you know, was blanketed under the Asia Pacific with India out of it, because the Indian Ocean was not part of it, has now become really a confluence of the two Asian, uh, oceans, India and, and the Pacific. So uh, yesterday in Delhi, during the two plus two meeting, they articulated once again, I would say, a shared vision for an Indo-Pacific uh, and global leadership uh, mission that um, that all countries in this region have a have a have a shared approach uh, to. So the ministers, the U.S. and the Indian ministers, talked about a commitment to a free, open, inclusive, peaceful, and prosperous Indo-Pacific. And I notice in the in the discussions that the United States has been having with Bangladesh. Uh, they add secure to it, a free, open, inclusive, peaceful, prosperous, and secure in Indo-Pacific. And again, they are talking of ASEAN centrality because we are next door to the Southeast Asian region where we are, uh, where we are situated. And so we always talk of the centrality of Southeast Asia, of the ASEAN countries in this vision of the Indo-Pacific rule of law, sustainable and transparent infrastructure investment, which is not exactly what the Chinese are doing with their, uh, with their uh, development partners in the region. Uh, we stress freedom of navigation and mutual respect for sovereignty. And I think this is really a code word for the kind of aggression and muscularity that the Chinese have been displaying in the region where you have territorial disputes and India uh, herself uh, has uh, has seen uh, how this works out when you have a dispute uh, with a neighboring country, in our case, China. Uh, we have a 2,200 mile, uh, approximately uh, mile long border that we share with China. And it's a, it's a disputed border because there are disputes along this border which have not been settled and the situation really flared up. We can talk about it perhaps in the discussion that follows. But um, what I want to stress is that during the Trump years, we've seen this contiguity and this closeness and this, uh, this very uh, sort of entrenched compatibility of views and vision and approach between India and the United States when it comes to this re our region. The revival of the quadrilateral security dialogue after it had died a premature death in 2007. So now it's been reincarnated, as it were. We all we Hindus believe in reincarnation, and we have a quadrilateral uh, dialogue. Uh, a a well-known journalist in India recently called it in Hindi a, a chin pedit dialogue. That means a dialogue among people who are troubled by China, though we don't say it, uh, and it's uh, perhaps not diplomatic to put it in such words. But in Tokyo, we had, there was a meeting of the Quad uh, earlier this month, and India, for the first time, also participated in the Five Eyes Intelligent Grouping 
meeting to talk about, and this includes the United States, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand, to discuss law enforcement and encryption policies of com companies like Apple, Apple and uh, Facebook. So uh, we've announced the expansion of the annual Malabar naval exercise to include Australia. Australia had been knocking on the door for some time. It had participated at one stage uh, many years ago and then dropped out uh, because um, at that time, I think the, the equation between Australia and China was very, very different. But anyway, Australia is back now and these exercises will be held in the Bay of Bengal, I believe, uh, next month. So there is really an expansion of shared goals. Now, will this, this quickening diplomatic dance, as, it, as it's called, how, is, how will it pan out if there is a change of administration and if uh, Vice President Biden uh, is the winner of the presidential election. My view is that this relationship uh, between India and the United States particularly uh, will uh, is rock steady. It's a stable relationship. And if Mr. Biden becomes president, I expect a continuation of, um, uh, of the very strong uh, alignment of interests that you see between India and the US, uh, both in the region and globally. Of course, uh, Mr. Biden is expected uh, to, um, uh, to put his own stamp, his own style uh, and uh, on this relationship. And, uh, we, and he's spoken at length during the campaign about how he views the relationship with India and how he's going to approach issues like trade and immigration uh, and of course, uh, and to take the, the relationship between the, our two democracies, the emphasis on democracy and alliance of democracies. We don't use the word alliance very much in our diplomatic uh, jargon here in India. We use terms like alignment. We speak of strategic autonomy, but there is virtually, I think, a much closer diplomatic dance between India and the United States. So it's really a very consequential relationship. And it's also a poll proof relationship as the, as the uh, international affairs, global affairs specialist, uh, Raja Mohan put it in, a, in an op-ed in the Indian Express just yesterday. So all this is happening against the background of a crisis with China. It's also happening against the background of a very strong presence that China is asserting in our region. And when we look at South Asia, which is essentially meant to be an integer, it's meant to be far more integrated in India and its seven neighbors. We're eight countries in South Asia. And um, the South Asian Association of Regional Cooperation is not fulfilled its potential. It's a case of promise denied in many ways. And uh, we need much more integration, much more infrastructural connectivity, much more uh, trade activity, much more people to people linkages. And that's really what is the vision uh, for an integrated South Asia that I constantly stress and in the work I do also outside the field of diplomacy. But China has become the dragon in the room as far as South Asia is concerned. It's uh, much more uh, of a visible presence and it's making its impact felt economically, de developmentally. People call this the age of implementation and essentially China has proved itself to be extremely adept uh, as far as uh, making a difference in terms of its presence in the region. And that goes for Nepal, that goes for Bangladesh, that goes for Sri Lanka, that go goes for Pakistan. 
that goes for the Maldives, uh, uh, not for Bhutan. I, Bhutan is a country that does not have uh, diplomatic relations or linkages uh, with China. It has an outstanding boundary dispute, as you know, uh, with, uh, with China, just as India has. And you're all aware of what happened on the Doklam Plateau in 2017. Uh, China and Pakistan are extremely close. They're the Iron Brothers, as they call themselves. Now, is, the, is a change of administration as a result of the US election going to make a difference in South Asia? Here again, I believe the approach and uh, the, uh, the determinant, basically, the determinant is essentially the China factor. And, and you've seen that with Secretary Pompeo going to Sri Lanka and traveling to the Maldives and then going to Indonesia. The US and you had Deputy Secretary of State Biegen here in the region just a, a few days ago. There is a lot of work that the United States suddenly, you know, it's activated itself in terms of reaching out to these countries. There's a defense cooperation agreement now with the Maldives, which India has also welcomed. Um, with Sri Lanka, you're trying to do more on the Millennium Change Cooperation Initiative. Uh, and in terms of uh, uh, trying to get the message across to the region that, you know, uh, diplomacy is not all about running up debts with China, which is what has happened with a lot of these countries. And that uh, for development to take place, you also have to look at transparency. You have to look at uh, uh, freeing yourself with, from too much of a debt burden. You have to uh, function uh, like you know, uh, a rule-based international order is expected to function. And I think these countries do understand but it's also a complicated situation. Take a country like Nepal, it has to uh, achieve a balance, a geopolitical balance between China to the north, between India to the south. And if the United States were to come in, it's a classic three-body problem, I think, that uh, all these countries are going to face. With Pakistan, the Trump administration, uh, after a very rocky start, I think, because of the problems in Afghanistan and the need to uh, come to a so-called settlement of the Afghan problem uh, has certainly um, uh, felt the need uh, for a greater role by Pakistan. Uh, I'm, I think I'm exceeding my 10 minutes at the moment, but let me say that the situation in Afghanistan is going to demand the attention of any new administration that is coming in. It's going to perhaps be the, the uh, primary topic as far as South Asia is concerned uh, in, uh, in the next few months. And we'll have to see what the outcomes are going to be. So in short, uh, the situation is complex. Uh, there is the China factor. There is a United States that uh, sees, uh, uh, as it looks forward, a period of, uh, of continued confrontation with China. And the impact of that is going to be felt all across our region. But the India-US relationship is in a good place and will continue to be in a good place. It is essentially a pole. A pole relationship. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Um, just masterful survey as always uh, in such a short amount of time. You, you took us through the region um, and there's just so much to unpack there. Vipin, if I can turn it over to you and, and you know, one of the themes I was able to tease out from what Ambassador Rao just said is that, look, ultimately, at least with respect to India, irrespective of who wins next week, assuming we know the winner next week, uh, we can expect 
continuity, right? That basically since at least the end of the Clinton years up until now, you know, here in the U.S., we call it the so-called bipartisan consensus around the U.S.-India relationship. It doesn't matter who occupies the White House. It doesn't matter who occupies the prime minister's residence or which party, that there's structural reasons why this relationship will continue to be on an upwards trajectory. You have a convergence of values, a convergence of interests, and for that reason alone, it's pull-proof. Uh, it, it's, it's immune from the other vagaries externally that one can expect in other cases or with other countries when you have a change in power. If you can just start off by addressing that first, if you don't mind, especially just taking kind of the U.S. side of this and then, and then go from there, that would be great. Great. Uh, thanks, Ronak. Uh, thanks to the Mental Institute uh, for hosting this. It's a real pleasure and honor to be back. Uh, I started my graduate career when the South Asia Institute was the South Asia Initiative, so it's great to see uh, it flourishing. Um, and, you know, it's really not fair to have me follow Ambassador Rao, uh, who I've long admired, who's not only an architect of the U.S.-India relationship, but Indian foreign policy really over the last several decades. Uh, and she'll remember this, but uh, she first uh, appeared on graduate students' radars in, I think, must have been the, in 2002 when she was the MEA spokesperson. And she deadpanned in response to a series of Pakistan missile tests, we are not impressed. Uh, and everybody who studied security in South Asia said this was, you know, an impressive answer. Um, and so we've we've known Ambassador Rao for a long time in the strategic community, uh, and it's an honor to follow her uh, here. So um, I agree with everything uh, uh, that that she said and the outline of her remarks. So let me let me take a step back and talk a little bit about the structural uh, features of this relationship uh, that make it bipartisan, that make it longstanding. You know, there's a tendency you know, to look at the two plus two and say, you know, this is really uh, something new, something uh, ex uh, that, that's unprecedented. But really, the U.S.-India relationship picked up uh, in 2000 after the nadir of India's nuclear test in 1998. I think U.S.-India relations were essentially at a rock bottom uh, in 1998. The Clinton administration sanctioned India. But it only took two years for President Clinton to make a historic state visit to India, uh, and every president since uh, has, has gone to India. And uh, the bipartisan consensus rests really on four major pillars, and I call them the four Ds. Uh, you'll have to forgive me, I had to squeeze some of the, uh, the, the terms into, into the Ds, but there's democracy, right? So there's shared values in democracy. Uh, defense, right? The fact that you know, both uh, are elevating the security partnership uh, you know, for a long time, it was because of the centrality of India in the Indo-Pacific region, because of its ge geopolitical position, uh, and it wasn't aimed at any one country. Uh, the U.S. had relations with uh, uh, a relationship with Pakistan, particularly after 9/11, uh, and India had a relationship with China. But there was a, a natural defense relation, security partnership between the two. The there's a, the pillar of dollars. Right, trade the trade relationship has improved. I think India and the U.S. are now, including services, each other's largest trading partners. I mean, that's a huge improvement over the last several decades. And the last pillar is diaspora. Ronak, people like you and me, Indian Americans, uh, both the immigrant stream and then first generation immigrants that have a natural tie to India that have elevated the partnership. And these are somewhat these are immutable. These are structural conditions that have made the partnership, uh, you know, a bipartisan. Uh, and bilateral, uh, uh, you know, long-standing uh, uh, set set the two on a long-standing trajectory since 2000. Uh, 
and the highlight was probably, you know, is often held up as the Indo-US nuclear deal, a signature, uh, you know, uh, achievement of the George W. Bush administration, really, uh, that after the nuclear tests, where India was on the outside of the nuclear weapons community, the Indo-US nuclear deal brought India into the mainstream nuclear fold. Uh, and de facto recognized India as a legitimate nuclear weapons power. It was unprecedented what the United States was able to achieve with India in the Indo-US nuclear deal. Uh, but often what's forgotten is a lot of the, the, the details you know, that, that aren't as sexy as the Indo-US nuclear deal. So much is happening on the trade side, on the people-to-people -people side, uh, on the defense side uh, that doesn't necessarily make headlines. Uh, but which is integral to the elevation of the partnership. And that has been, you know, long, uh, that has continued since the Clinton administration, the W administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and whoever wins next, next week as well. Uh, and, you know, you see some of the, the, the fruits of that labor, uh, the signing of the Becca agreement, of the so, one of the so-called foundational agreements yesterday, now allow India and U.S. militaries uh, to exchange uh, geospatial intelligence, navigational uh, data, uh, and helps improve the exercises that have long been going on between India and the U.S., both in the Navy, the Air Force, and uh, the Army. Tri-service exercises uh, have, have started becoming more frequent. The Malabar exercises Ambassador Rao mentioned uh, are longstanding. There's, uh, you know, the inclusion of Australia this time after many years, but you know, the the foundational agreements. You know, there's a, a little, there's a myth that these will all of a sudden allow India and the United States to fight together. That's not entirely accurate. I mean, these are enabling agreements, and a lot of the contours have to be worked out. There's still agency as to what is shared, but the fundamental point is that the Indian and U.S. militaries have been working on interoperability for a long time, and militaries that can operate together can fight together. And that's a really important elevation from, you know, in 2016, India was designated a major defense partner, which is kind of a bespoke term uh, for India uh, in, the, in, in, in the United States. It's not a NATO ally, it's not a, you know, Japan or South Korea, but it's, a, it's designated a major defense partner. Um, and it, it is a recognition of sort of the unique place that India holds outside of the formal alliance structure that the United States has uh, it, as a major strategic partner. I mean, the, the phrase you know, that defines the relationship now is I think comprehensive global strategic partnership, uh, which is kind of a mouthful, but a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And it, it really reflects uh, you know, these major pillars on which the relationship rests. Uh, and we sh that's not to say that there aren't points of friction. And I think it's important, you know, to the, the reason why the United States and India are not formal allies is because each have interests that don't necessarily overlap. And that's important to recognize. Uh, and, you know, India has uh, a, a, an approach that was previously characterized as strategic autonomy. Uh, and, and that may have slowed down some of the development developments over the last decade, such as the, the signing of these foundational agreements. I think skeptics will say, well, it took 10 years to sign Becca. The optimist says, well, you still got there, right? Uh, and these points of friction, you know, sometimes it's over immigration, it's over Harley Davidson's, it's over climate change, uh, exist. And, you know, there's, there's no need to obscure those. I think friends don't often always agree about everything, but it's important not to forget the 
the major and enduring features over which India and the United States do agree. Uh, and you know, dollars, defense, diaspora, uh, and uh, democracy are the four major pillars uh, of that relationship. But it is important to note, and this is something that I want to uh, focus on. Ambassador uh, uh, Rao mentioned there has been an accelerant lately, right? A catalyst for I think a lot of the things that India, in particular, may have been hesitant about previously, uh, ha have sort of been left by the wayside because of China, right? So uh, I think. Some hesitations on the Indian side were because uh, India did not want to overtly be seen as entering into a deeper military partnership with the United States because it wanted to at least engage China in some ways, to, to borrow uh, a phrase from somebody I just plagiarized from, and I can't remember who said it. But, uh, you know, there's China is, is, is India's neighbor. Uh, and in terms of uh, vertical supply chain ingredients and uh, dependencies for pharmaceuticals, electronics, China's sort of an unavoidable partner. And it's perfectly understandable from a realist perspective why India uh, would want to at least uh, maintain uh, you know, a, a, a vibrant trading and political relationship with China. Uh, but the fact is, after Doklam, China's become more aggressive. And this year has you know, whether uh, we want to overtly admit it or not, taking bites out of claimed Indian territory. Uh, and it may be that, you know, one can, uh, you know, exploit the ambiguities around the line of actual control and what has precisely happened. We don't understand the ground situation precisely. Uh, but the fact is that China has taken pieces of territory that it did not occupy before, that India believed was its own. Uh, and this has, I think, sort of clarified for India and was already clarifying for the United States uh, that you know maybe a, a deeper security partnership with the United States was something that China was going to assume anyway. So why not just dispense with the facades uh, and some of the niceties and accelerate what was going to happen anyway? And I think uh, China has uh, the the, the chi Chinese behavior, particularly towards India and Ladakh uh, and along the LAC, has accelerated some of these developments in ways that have clarified both for India but also the United States. Uh, that this partnership can be deepened in ways uh, that are beneficial and in both countries' interests. That said, structurally, regardless of who wins next week, there's still limits as to what India can do on a, a number of dimensions. One, China is still India's neighbor and is still a large trading partner. And India is still dependent on pharmaceutical, active pharmaceutical uh, ingredients, APIs into a lot of uh, uh, India's own pharmaceutical industry, uh, electronics broader trade, uh, and it still has to deal with the fact that China is a, neighbor, is, is a neighborhood and an Asian actor. Uh, and so there are limits as to what India may be willing to do, and the U.S. has to at least appreciate or accept that. Um, but there's also kind of the, this other uh, you know, actor in the room, which is Russia. And on the defense side, at least, which is the area that I study most closely, it is an inescapable fact that the Indian military is a Russian military. All of the frontline equipment from the Sukhois and the MiGs in the Air Force to the T-90 series in the Army, the tanks, uh, to the naval reactors with the Indian Navy are Russian provenance, if not outright Russian. And it will the Indian military cannot turn on a dime. And it needs maintenance and spares, and it needs operations, and it needs further replacements from Russia for all of that equipment. And it's not going to happen overnight, which means India is inescapably 
dependent on Russia. And that creates some problems for the defense relationship. Uh, India is going ahead with the purchase of the S-400 missile defense, air defense, missile defense system. Uh, and there is this issue about CATSA, you know, the, the congressional legislation on Russia uh, for parties that purchase significant Russian equipment. And the S-400 is significant because the United States does not necessarily want its main line, you know, equipment, F-16s, F-18s operating in the same space as the S-400 because it can give the Russians data on U.S. equipment. Uh, and interoperability, India has this problem already about operating a military with so many different suppliers. Uh, the, the reality is that its primary supplier is Russia. And that limits how much maneuvering room India has on the defense side with the United States. There's certain equipment that the U.S. may be reluctant to provide. There may be certain data that the U.S. is reluctant to provide so long as India is, and it inescapably is for the next several decades, uh, primarily Russian military. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be a very significant and deep cooperation with uh, with India on the defense side. I mean, the United States has operated with Russian, mili Russian supplied militaries in the past, such as Egypt, uh, but that does impose upper limits and a ceiling on the, on the relationship. The other big structural impediment, which will have, I think, big implications for who wins next week uh, is India's economy, right? So one of the attractiveness of India for the United States since 2000 has been liberalization, India's rising economy. Well, the pandemic has put a dent in India's economic rise. Uh, and this year is going to be very, very bleak for uh, India's economic growth numbers. And recovering that economy is gonna be India's largest challenge because uh, a weaker India, as Ashley Tellis has said, uh, is a less attractive India uh, for the United States as a partner in the defense relationship. So, you know, an India that can't buy ships can't operate and exercise and improve cooperation with the United States in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and so if India's economy continues to decline, it's possible that a Trump administration won't care, will overlook what the Democrats have focused on in the past a little bit more, which is the perceived declining liberalism in India, right? The democratic pillar. The Trump administration has overlooked that for the most part and has been very quiet about it. It is not clear to me, and it's not a foregone conclusion that a Biden administration would. Uh, and there are elements within the Democratic Party, for example, that are very concerned about human the, 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 um, the domestic legislation in Kashmir, uh, the uh, detention of legitimate opposition leaders. Uh, and that was raised by people who will populate a Biden administration when they're in Congress. Uh, and Ashley Tellis has also said, you know, that this may be a, a, an increasing point of friction if India's economy opens the space for a democratic administration to focus more, which focuses more on human rights and values, uh, to potentially raise red flags about that if that continues in India. And so there may be this variation if India's structural position and its declining economy persists, uh, where uh, a Biden administration may focus more on the dem democracy pillar than a Trump administration would. Uh, and so there may be an impact depending on who wins the election. Uh, but I think that's variation on the theme. I think the broad theme will persist. India is a valuable partner of the United States. The four pillars persist. Uh, it's not as if the United States is in a position, especially now to talk about declining liberalism in any country. Uh, you know, so there are those in glass houses sometimes shouldn't throw stones, uh, but there are you know, the, these enduring features that have led to uh, an elevated partnership, uh, I think will persist regardless of who wins. And there may be some variation on the theme. I will say that I think the real indicator 
you know, we're still in the phase where a two plus two uh, meeting and ministerial meeting is treated sort of like Diwali. You know, it's it's an it's an exciting uh, and uh, headline uh, raising event. I think a real indicator for when the relationship has made it is when those are so routine that they aren't on the front page of the newspaper. And I think that's what will be a really strong indicator that the partnership has moved beyond theatrics into something that is so routinized and so deep that we don't even think about it anymore. Like we do with Japan or South Korea, when a Japanese or South Korean minister visits the United States or vice versa, it's so routine that it doesn't make the front, uh, the, the headlines or, or front page news. And I think, you know, that's kind of where the relationship is headed. And I look forward to the day that that's sort of what the relationship looks like. So I'll stop there. Uh, and turn over to you, Ronak, and to questions answered from the audience. Thank you. No, thanks so much, Fippin. Um, and again, just so insightful as always. And you you brought up a number of topics that I want to explore. Um, I'm very mindful of the fact that so far, most of our discussion has focused on India. I want to make that discussion a bit more panoramic. And, and before I do that, though, there are, there are a few points that you, know, you and Ambassador Rao both hit on substantively and both thematically. What, what I find striking, right, this idea that there will likely be continuity, there is this bipartisan consensus, um, and ultimately, you know, we can expect a lot of, of the same to move forward, given you have these structural, the four Ds, as you call them, and these other factors, uh, you know, embedded within the relationship. I mean, I think the one, one of the areas that sets Trump apart, which is why I'm, I'm focused on differences here for a second, is that Trump comes in. And just like a lot of his predecessors, he spent the first couple of years trying to strike a deal with China, trying to have a friendly orientation to China. If you remember during the early Obama years, they talked about a G2, which provoked a lot of outrage in Delhi. Uh, and this seems to be a very familiar pattern, right, where the U.S. will try to engage Chinese leadership. They try to strike all sorts of bargains and pronouncements, and that ultimately fails. And I think Trump went in with a similar expectation, but learned very quickly uh, that that wasn't going to work. What I feel sets him apart from his predecessors uh, and what may set him apart from, from a potential Biden administration, which has profound implications for, for folks in South Asia, is he's made the U.S. position on China very clear. Any ambiguity that existed with respect to how they view China, what their posture toward China is, I think has, you know, has, been, has been clarified uh, uh, to a hilt. And if you even look at Secretary Pompeo's remarks in Delhi, you know, in Sri Lanka, what he's likely to say in the Maldives, the Chinese Communist Party is followed by a litany of accusations. And, you know, we've talked about the two plus two and, and, and Vipin, you and Ambassador Rao both talked about, you know, on the one hand, the Quad is going through this resurgence. Uh, it also seems as if China has become the dragon in the room that folks are, talk are willing to talk more openly about. Have the Chinese inadvertently or, or, or not pushed the Indians perhaps more closely to, to the Americans. But what I found striking yesterday is if you compare what Secretary Pompeo was saying about China versus what Minister Jay Shankar was saying, it, it was quite, quite the contrast. Uh, Jay Shankar, I think, was very careful with, he didn't mention China expressly, I, I thought his comments in that regard were almost a little bit more bland, right? He very clearly wanted to make sure he was not going to say something that was going to box India in. They're not willing at this point, from what it looks like, to really go much further, at least in terms of the rhetoric, that would somehow foreclose the possibility of a resolution, a settlement of some kind, even in the short to medium term. And the reason I bring that up is if Trump 
has taken this posture. And again, it might in, in, in off the record conversations and capitals around South Asia be welcome. Uh, if a Biden administration comes in, this question I think will resurface again. Uh, will you see the Biden folks try to engage China constructively? Will there be elements of both competition and cooperation? How, how should countries in that region prepare for that, for example, right? If that is in fact the case, if Trump is quite clear on where he is, I think the Biden folks will bring in a degree of nuance perhaps that isn't so express um, than what we've seen over the past two and a half years. That's one, and I'll have you both comment on that here in a second. The second thing I wanted to also just discuss is I was waiting to see how long it took for Kashmir to be brought up. Uh, and I think if this conversation had taken place six months ago or eight months ago, it would have been brought up much more quickly and, and, and at the forefront. What's been very interesting to me, uh, I think the Chinese did a great service to India with respect to the Kashmir issue in terms of international fora, where the U.S. is willing to manage a lot of the you know, domestic issues in India, willing to perhaps overlook it, willing to perhaps approach it with the degree, again, of nuance that otherwise wouldn't have existed because the China question has once again emerged at the forefront. And, you know, if we talk to Ashley Tellis, he'll tell you, look, ultimately China and the rise of China, the unknown nature of the rise of China was one of the reasons that brought these two countries together. It's why the Bush administration took such a, a heavy strategic bet on India. And what greater reminder uh, than that than to see 20 Indian soldiers murdered on the border with clubs and with nails and so on and so forth. So even in Sri Lanka, for example, right, this debate's taking place there in a, in a different way. Has the U.S. been more willing to overlook the D component, the democracy component in a country like China, in Sri Lanka, excuse me, where there might be some backsliding based on what's happening in the country internally, or human rights issues with respect to the civil war that were at the forefront of that relationship even six or seven years ago, don't seem to be as important, right? Has the China factor as a result ultimately overtaken other considerations that are weighed to be relatively less important than the security defense and other ones that we're seeing right now? And Ambassador Ralph, if you can you know, start off, start us off, that'd be great. Um, okay, let me try and tackle uh, yes. the, the issues that you raised. Um, well, I think, um, you know, uh, if you're talking about how a Biden administration is going to uh, deal with the China factor, I think uh, the term that um, Vipin uh, used uh, about engagement, I think would definitely apply. I believe, uh, yes, uh, if you look at the Obama-Biden years and uh, the manner in which China was engaged with, uh, you would uh, perhaps assume that um, some of that would continue to guide a Biden administration, uh, if uh, that were to be the outcome of the uh, elections uh, next week. But I'm not sure that if it's going to be exactly like that, because, uh, you know, when you talk of bipartisan consensus regarding India, there is, of course, a very, very now entrenched bipartisan consensus within the United States and across the popular spectrum about China, about the threat from China, about the way China has shortchanged the United States and about the death of engagement with China. So uh, even Mr. Biden has used rather, uh, you know, a negative terms uh, like calling China a thug, for instance, okay. in one of one of the debates. So so I don't believe that the approach to China will be any uh, will be vanilla anymore. I think, um, you know, it may not be as strident 
and as in your face as you know how secretary pompeo refers to china and the chinese communist party and he insists on calling uh, president xi, xi jinping general secretary xi jinping so it's become very ideological i'm not so sure to what extent the ideological factor uh, will define the approach to china but it will be defined a lot by you know the the outcomes that we are now able to perceive with the benefit of hindsight about the steps that the united states took to took in regard to bringing china into the global fold and how um, really uh, how that had failed i mean there there is a failure at the heart of all that happened vis-a-vis uh, -vis china because uh, ultimately uh, china did not play by the rule book uh, by and large and uh, china has an approach to the global order that is essentially very different from the kind of uh, structures that we built uh, in the post war period and which essentially all the world has subscribed to uh, these years and especially after uh, you know the fall of the soviet union and uh, uh, you know we assumed that that would be the end of history but that has not happened so the whole chinese approach to building a world order that is more uh, conducive and compatible to their own image uh, of how you know stability is to be defined and how uh, governance is to be defined and how uh, diversity is to be dealt with all that is essentially conflictual when it comes to the principles that uh, we define as uh, composing uh, the world order today so i don't believe it will be easy for for mr biden if he comes uh, he becomes the president uh, to approach china in a way that is tangentially different from how uh, the trump um, uh, years have uh, you know defined the approach to china and i think you have to give mr trump that credit when he really tore the veils off china and was able to expose it for what it is and i think most of the world sees that threat today there's a complete diminution of trust the trust factor when it comes to china so i believe that a biden administration for all its emphasis on you know dealing with china and uh, trying to uh, be able to persuade and convince china to play by the rules i don't think that's that's really going to work so you are going to see difficult times uh, between in uh, china and the united states and that has an impact on the rest of the world and on all of us who are also seeing this uh, this very um, very uh, uh, forbidding and also negative uh, face of china uh, today as far as um, the kashmir kashmir issue is concerned i again you know when i talk, think of the united states india relationship uh, you know like vipin spoke of the four d's i would speak of the four c's there's continuity there's consensus there's cooperation and there's compatibility and i believe that when it comes to the us and china even uh, us and india even under a biden administration these factors will kind of undergird the relationship so if it's an issue of human rights or if it's an issue of liberal democratic um, uh, society and the way you know the rules should apply to to societies such as ours and maybe there will be private discussions uh, you know uh, face to face one to one or uh, within an official um, uh, you know network perhaps views will be exchanged on such issues congress uh, mem some members of congress may speak uh, against what is happening there but i believe by and large the 
uh, overarching interests of this relationship and uh, the strategic outlook towards the Indo-Pacific, uh, all these factors uh, and the fact that India is a large democracy, it is a large uh, burgeoning uh, economy with great potential. There's a lot of business that the United States can do with India, especially after, you know, the China relationship uh, seems to be self-destructing. Uh, the whole question of building up closer economic ties and uh, uh, building up India's strengths in the region, I think, will be a priority of uh, the United States. And therefore, issues like Kashmir, I don't believe, will be uh, deal breakers or, uh, or, you know, very, very deep irritants in the relationship. Vipin, anything to add? Look, I think that's right on. And, you know, my view on this is if Kashmir may have been an issue months ago, even if a President Biden comes into power in January of next year, it simply won't be a factor in, in American decision making with respect to India, or at least not a major factor. And, yeah, I, and while, while this may be an issue of, of style over substance, look, it's, it's one thing to have President Trump in India earlier this year, you know, violence breaks out in Delhi, which appears to have had a communal component. And he doesn't say a word, right? And ultimately, he says that's India's business. That's one thing. And I think what you said in terms of would you know, a Biden administration be as, as silent on something like that as a Trump would be, perhaps not. But would it, in terms of change the overall calculus, change the overall structure, change the overall um, arrangement between the two countries on so many other foundational issues, my view is, is most likely not. Uh, especially given other other threats uh, and other interests that have emerged, which once again have reminded the two countries of why they are so-called natural partners. Now, I agree completely with that. I don't think anyone's going to hold the relationship hostage due to domestic political factors in the other country. And I also, you know, the thing that will threaten, I think there are two major threats to the long-term, uh, you know, I think continuity in, in the trajectory. One is, if India's economy can't get itself together, I, I think that that is a real concern. I think, um, you know, uh, it, it, part of the attraction of India as a, as a defense and trading partner is it, its growing potential in Asia as uh, an economic and military heavyweight. Uh, and so that is really important. I just, you know, in, in terms of the contribution India can make uh, to that partnership, if its economy, if it has to focus inwardly because its economy is not uh, is not able to recover at the rate that Delhi may want it to, then that can have impact on this on, on the structural features of the relationship. The other thing is, and I think this is important, a lot of the threats to the the relationship have been in the past, I think, overinflated expectations. Yeah. The, the 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 India-US relationship performs best when things are quiet, happening behind closed doors, and there isn't hype around and overinflated expectations around the relationship. India is not going to become like Japan. India is not going to be a NATO ally, and we shouldn't think of it that way. India doesn't want it, it's not necessary, and the United States doesn't approach relationships like that anymore. And so when you hear, uh, you know, I, I think there's a tendency in both capitals to sort of, you know, talk about an elevation of the relationship to unrealistic levels. And I think when you set the expectations high, I mean, I'm a born pessimist, so I always say keep expectations low and beat them. Don't set them high and always fall short. And so, you know, my own... You're, you're just an Indian son, Vipin, that's all. Maybe that's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> Our parents used to set them up here, right? This right. Is, so, 
Yeah, my mom is still upset I didn't go to medical school. This is how. So there's, you know, I, I, I do think that the relationship performs best when the expectations are kept realistic. And a lot of these conversations are held in private or, you know, there isn't a lot of fanfare around it. Right. I think uh, the relationship that is on the headline in the headlines all the time is one that is kind of at risk of, you know, failing to meet expectations. And so uh, the structural features are going to continue. And uh, there's no reason, you know, India will have to get it all, the entire world has to get the economies back going. But I think, you know, India may face challenges there that other countries as a developing nation, uh, you know, d don't face. So, uh, you know, that, that is a big, um, that is a big challenge for India. But I also think, you know, being very clear headed in both capitals about what the relationship is about and what it isn't, I think is actually to the benefit of the relationship. So everything else I think won't hold, you know, is not a real threat to the relationship. And I think, you know, there, you... Were, there were two points uh, that I thought I'd add here, you know, on the issue of Kashmir, everybody talks about the, you know, the phase in the Clinton administration when, you know, Kashmir was spoken about uh, people I noticed in some webinars are bringing up the example of Robin Rafel. I don't believe that situation will duplicate itself or replicate itself today because uh, the relationship between India and the United States is in such a different place. And even if the Indian economy is not doing so well, I, uh, and take some time to recover. I do hope that won't be the situation. Uh, I just believe the place the relationship is in today and the the way India has changed and the way it's grown and the way you know uh, it counts in this region as a force for stability and uh, and for partnership, for strengthening of a partnership between our two uh, countries. I think that is going to be the governing factor. That is going to be the you know the the uh, the do or die kind of uh, kind of factor. And as far as the Economy is concerned now. If Mr. Biden were to be elected, and you know he's going to engage in more fiscal spending, and there may be a weakening of the U.S. dollar, that may help actually help Indian Indian markets, and also uh, less of an intense pressure or less intense pressure on China on the trade front. Just suppose that Biden decides to lower the tariffs, or you know try to come to some terms with China on that. That may help Indian markets as well, although it may not really help our efforts to, you know, build more manufacturing as a replacement uh, for China and to and to and on the whole question of resilience of supply chains also. But let's see how things turn out. But it's a the world is a very different place today, and I think the the uh, the overriding factor is the China-U.S. Uh, competition. Even if there is no war, I think uh, there are very, very turbulent times ahead. Yeah, and I was just going to add, look, I think the U.S. and India in that regard are somewhat in the same position, right? As, as important as these bilateral ties are and as important as these relationships are even within a larger constellation of South Asia, the U.S. is also going to be dealing with a number of formidable internal challenges um, irrespective of who wins next week, right? And India is going through its own internal, its own internal obstacles, and I think that will most likely take priority and, to a certain extent, really shape what engagement is going to look like. You know, at least in the short term. Um, just to wrap up the China conversation, we've gotten a number of questions here um, that that more or less track the same way. And, and the question here is, you know, given China's various initiatives in the region and beyond, uh, whether it is Belt and Road, maritime, whether it's what we call debt trap diplomacy. Um, what can these two countries do, the U.S. and India, to help manage 
Chinese actions in a manner, if I can just paraphrase, in a manner that won't further exacerbate tensions, right? We talk about the classic Thucydides trap. Are you taking actions that are making, you know, your, 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 your potential adversary more insecure, which leads to an escalation? You know, what can and should these two countries be doing beyond what they've already done um, to help manage, uh, you know, Chinese, Chinese actions or, or Chinese revisionist actions in the region and beyond? in a manner that's responsible and still can lead to, you know, a, a more secure global architecture. And Vipin, if you want to start us off. Yeah, so I, I wanted to add just one thing um, on the India's relationship. One advantage that whoever, if, Bi if President, Vice President Biden wins next week, one huge advantage he has is he doesn't have to do a huge repair in yep. the way that he would have to do with Europe and Asia, because President Trump has so disrupted American relations with almost every other country are closest. In fact, it is better to be, you know, uh, outside of America's formal alliance structure right now, because, you know, if you're Germany and, you know, uh, you know, continental Europe, there's a lot of repairing to be done. Uh, but President Trump, you know, India has been one of, in terms of continuity and uh, just in terms of foreign policy, it has been one of President Trump's bright spots. And that gives the vice president or a Trump too a huge advantage. You don't have to do a huge repair. There isn't a concern, you know, that the, you know, even under President Trump, the U.S. you know, stayed the course with with India. And so that's a huge advantage no matter who, who wins. And that actually, I think, is a testament, you know, uh, a surprising testament to the to to the, the relationship. I think if you had asked me, you know, given President Trump's own, you know, somewhat, um, you know, racist proclivities, whether that would have happened, I, I don't think in 2016 it was a foregone conclusion. Uh, but it did. And that was, you know, a big bright spot. Now on the China question, it's a very good question because, you know, in, in international relations theory, we have, you know, the, from Bob Jervis, this deterrence versus spiral model and the U S and India, I think want to bolster deterrence against China, but China gets a vote. And it is not clear to me that China will see anything that the U S and India or the U S does with anybody else which may be intended for deterrence purposes as anything but spiral. Right. And we may be there. I'm actually increasingly convinced that there is no deterrence model. We're always in a spiral world. Uh, and that is that has huge implications, I think, for the United States in particular, but also for America's partners in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, and there should be no illusions that these deepening partnerships are going to be viewed either instrumentally, and I think largely instrumentally, by China, as sort of a self-encirclement midst of empire, you know, development. And they will use it, you know, Xi Jinping may use it to rally around the flag. Look at what the US is doing with all of our neighbors. They're encircling us, right? Even if it's self-encircling, which it seems to be. I mean, China is the one who took bites out of India's territory. China is the one who's behaving the way it is in the South China Sea and Hong Kong. Uh, and it, it is the revisionist power. Uh, but the narrative in China will easily be you know, you can already see it happening. You know, if, if India and the U.S. deepen their partnership, this is a this is provocative against China. So I'm not sure if there's a way around this. And mm. you know that that has that has real implications for how the relationship should be viewed and thought of, right? So we should have no illusions that these are going to be viewed as defensive in nature. The Chinese are going to view this as provocative, and we should adjust accordingly. Um, you know, when it comes uh, to the region, uh, we don't want asymmetric multipolarity. We would like a more balanced multipolarity. And I think that is really what 
um, I hope the United States and India set out to do when even, uh, even as you build the quad and you try and enlarge the scope of its activities to look beyond defense and security into development, cooperation, technology-related uh, activity, uh, uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, infrastructure connectivity, and, and you know, building more dialogue mechanisms with other countries in the region who all have a problem with China. They may not speak out against it so much. In Southeast Asia, certainly, I think, uh, they're, they're hedging uh, their bets. They're trying to, you know, follow the middle way, as it were. But they have their problems with China, and uh, and I think they need some reassurance on that on that count. And as far as our South Asian neighbors uh, are concerned, Bar Pakistan, which of course is another uh, subset altogether, I think they're also striving for that kind of balance. It's not. Uh, you know what the question is: uh, What can Washington and New Delhi do to further their interests, especially in the light of China's maritime Silk Road and Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, you know, uh, how do you combat Chinese influence in the IOR? Now, China has set out to be become, uh, you know, a, a naval power. Every country in this world which has become a, a global power through history has built a, a huge navy, a powerful navy for itself. And that is really what China has set out to do. Uh, it's not yet a, a, a powerful presence in the Indian Ocean, but its reach is being extended especially, um, you know, the buildup of its presence in Djibouti, which is essentially a logistic facility. But I believe they've built a huge jetty there, which can accommodate an aircraft carrier as it, if, you know, it were to berth there. And what it does in Gwadar, the port it has built in Pakistan, at Pakistani request, as history uh, tells us. But today, of course, it's, it's there for the Chinese. It's their outlet to the Arabian Sea. Similarly, their relations with Bangladesh and Myanmar are, are essentially building them that, that reach and that access. Also with Sri Lanka, you know, the port of Hambantota on which they have a 99-year lease. Uh, so there is a possibility for a pivot really to take place in these areas. I mean, China is taking out uh, sort of insurance policies, as it were, uh, to build a presence for itself in the region, uh, which it can then uh, augment. So we have to be alert to all this. And I believe that the partnerships that uh, India, the United States, uh, democracies like Japan, we didn't talk about Japan, but Japan is really going to play a key role also in the in building this architecture for the Indo-Pacific, which is more transparent and inclusive and rules-based. But I think the cooperation that we are we need to focus on uh, must of course be defense and security. It must include interoperability, but it has also to look to uh, the interests of all these countries in the region and how they perceive the China threat and how they would like more of a balanced multipolarity. It is remarkable, I must say, that only 18 months removed from Pulwama and Balakot, we're not talking about Pakistan at all. And, know. you know, China has done this essentially, you know, on its own. And, you know, I think that's, you know, for, for Washington, this is the conversation that it's wanted to have and the clarity from India that it's wanted. And for India, I think it also provides clarity as to who its primary threat is in the region. And that's, I mean, we're only 18 months removed from that. And the fact that that's right, it's kind of on the sideline is it's it's a remarkable feature
Yes. No, exactly. absolutely. Well, look, let me just once again um, thank you both so much for what's been a fascinating discussion. I know you could have all gone several hours longer and it still would not be enough time for all that we want to discuss and should be discussing, but perhaps we can convene sometime after the election and see how we did. Uh, but again, I just want to thank you both for, for everything that you do for your service and just being such important voices, uh, you know, writ large on, on some of these issues. So thank you to you both. Thank you to the, uh, to the Mittal Institute for hosting and for organizing this. And of course, lastly, and perhaps most importantly, to those of you who have joined us in the middle of a day, depending on what part of the world you are, uh, to be a part of this conversation as well. I know my information and, and VIPINs are available publicly. Reach at any time. If you have questions for the ambassador, we can get those to her as well. And we look forward to continuing the conversation um, down the line. Thank you to you both. Thank you, Rana. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank Beth. you, Rana. Thank you, Vipin. Thank you, Chelsea. Thanks.